So, Happy New Year, everybody! Welcome to Tabled Fables, a podcast about fairy tales. To start off the new year, we're getting in touch with our inner beasts. Once upon a time. Once upon a time, a very beautiful girl was living in the countryside with her father. Um, This father was a genius in mechanics and he did so many weird machines. So when one day um, the beauty's father uh, went to the countryside. And uh, on his way, the merchant uh, is cocked into a, like a storm and he ends up in a castle and uh, he finds everything set up as like the castle was waiting for him. And uh, like eventually he discovered that a lot of furnitures are alive in the castle like the teapot or uh, like a lot of like table and stuff the chair and uh, i think that after he leaves the castle um, he takes a roses he finds in in like some garden of the castle and then a beast appears and like the beast get mad and say you 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 couldn't take that from me that was the the, the only beautiful thing i had left finds this chick who's hot and her name is Belle and he like somehow ends up getting her from her father to live in his castle and he's got a rose and he's got petals that drop off each year that he doesn't make sweet love with somebody and um, then so she comes to live with him and basically his castle has been like stuck in time and like she cleans the castle and makes it like really pretty She's very scared of the beast, and slowly she realizes that the beast is just scared, and then slowly she starts falling for the beast because he shows her a human side. And then it changed everything, so they fell in love, and um, then the spell went went away, and he became a prince charming, and she became her, his princess. So they get along well, <laughs> they fell in love, And this is the end of the story that I can remember. (laughs) So clearly the story we heard was influenced by the Disney version, which I'm going to go out on a limb now and say is the version most familiar to our listeners right now. Yeah, I I like that version, and I actually saw it last week and have some of the songs still stuck in my head. But, you know, (laughs) and that's okay. Um, I'm a huge fan of Angela Lansbury, so (laughs) Mrs. Potts, man, all the way, you know. But the funny thing is Disney changed sort of the villain in the story. They gave us this external villain, Gaston. In the standard version, before the Disney film came out, that was uh, the Beaumont version. Instead of having Gaston as our villain, and that being the reason that the Beast gets really sick and has to be rescued by Beauty's love, Beauty actually asks to visit her home again, and she leaves the Beast, and the Beast makes her promise to come back. But while she's visiting home, her jealous sisters convince her to stay for longer than she intended. And the beast thinks she has deserted him and he falls sick. And she she has a dream that he's dying. And she realizes she's overstayed her visit. And she rushes back to the beast and uh, he's on the brink of death. And she says she loves him. And that's when he transforms. Yeah. And that's for the Disney version. I mean, it's a lot easier to just kind of have an external force that's, you know, keeping her away from the beast or something else that, you know, children can relate to and a general audience can relate to as opposed to, you know, when you're dealing with written work, you can always explore those, you know, internal conflicts that people have. And that was more 
of the case with the Beaumont, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, because the Beaumont version, it's really beauty's negligence almost. Like, our heroine isn't as pure as we get in the the Disney version. But it's also, I think, maybe they were just like, we've done the evil, the two nasty sisters before. Let's just, like, skip that bit. (laughs) The Beaumont version was actually written in the 18th century by a woman. This is the first story we're talking about where the most famous version was written down by a woman. Her name was... um, Jean-Marie Le Prince de Beaumont, and she had a bit of a Beauty and the Beast story herself because she was married to a libertine husband and ended up getting that marriage annulled, so he was quite the beast. Hmm, so that might have influenced the story for her. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, and for this episode, we talked with Sarah Clito. My name is Sarah Clito. I'm a PhD student at The Ohio State University. I'm getting my degree in English, but my specialization is in folklore. The Beaumont version, which is the sort of standard version, at least until Disney came along, has actually been based, it was actually based on a story written a few decades earlier that was a longer story by an author called Villeneuve. Beaumont published her story in 1756, and Villeneuve's version was, I think, within the previous 20 years. Um, And Villeneuve's version was very, very long. It was very elaborate. And it's pretty much fallen out of favor, but it was the first literary version ever to be called Beauty and the Beast. And Beaumont took that story and really pared it down um, and transformed it into a tale for young girls like the ones that she tutored. She was actually a governess. In the Disney version, you have the prince starts out as a, um, a spoiled brat, really, and then He's transformed into a beast, then he's transformed into a good person, and then he's finally transformed back into a human. And Beauty is transformed in that she she turns from, I guess, someone who's not in love with the beast to someone who learns to look beyond his appearance and be in love with him. But in the Beaumont version, the beast isn't cursed with his beastliness because of his behavior. He's just cursed by an evil fairy. So the beast's transformation is not as extreme. The beasts, um, he's just, he's turned into an animal and he has to pretend to to be not as intelligent as he actually is because he has to win Beauty's love without, through his kindness and not through showing her his intelligence. So he's ugly and can't act witty or anything, but he wins her over anyway. So the more impressive transformation is Beauty's transformation, her ability to learn to love him. Because he asks her in the Beaumont version if she could marry him, and she says, no, I couldn't marry you. I, I, I highly esteem you, but I don't love you. So I feel like in the Disney version, they emphasize the Beast's transformation and make that more extreme, and they make Beauty's transformation less. And in the Beaumont version, the Beast still has a transformation, but they make Beauty's transformation actually a little bit more intense. But there's different levels of transformation and different partners in other tales. There's a ton of Beauty and the Beast tales. There are actually three sort of categories that folklorists at least talk about when they talk about um, Beauty and the Beast tales or Beast Bridegroom tales. The first category is sort of um, the, the questing category, which is the Cupid and Psyche type tales. So other ones that you might be familiar with are um, East of the Sun, West of the Moon, anything where um, Beauty goes off on a quest after breaking some sort of interdiction or breaking a promise. So that's the first category. And then the second category is broadly referred to as the beast bridegroom. 
So things like the pig king would go in there. Um, lots of oral tales go in there. Lots of uh, stories about women marrying snakes, for example, um, or the Appalachian tale, the small tooth dog. Like there, there are a bunch that fit in there. And then the final category is just called Beauty and the Beast. And those are the ones that um, most directly uh, fit in with, you know, Beaumont's version. Um, and they tend to be sort of more literary. All right. So we want to talk about some of these tales. And let's start with Cupid and Psyche. The tale of Cupid and Psyche is this Greek myth. So clearly it's pretty ancient. And it was written down in about 150 AD in a collection of tales by Lucius Apuleius. Uh, it was called The Golden Ass. Cupid falls in love with this mortal woman named Psyche who's beautiful. Everyone's saying how she's beautiful. She's like a goddess. And Venus gets really jealous. So she sends Cupid to make Psyche fall in love with something gross, like an animal. But instead, Cupid falls in love with her. Well, Cupid goes down to, to Psyche's house or whatever and sees her in bed. And he's just kind of gazing at her and gazing at her beauty. And then she wakes up. And when she opens her eyes and looks at Cupid, who's invisible to her, um, Cupid like gets freaked out and then he shoots his arrow into himself. Mm-hmm. And then he falls in love with Psyche and he's like, oh, crap, you know, like I totally <laughs> messed this one up and like my mom's going to be pissed. And of course she was. But still, Psyche still hasn't seen Cupid. So what happens is uh, she's really upset that she's not been married yet. And they take her to a mountain where a wind lifts her up and carries her to this gorgeous mansion. And she goes in and these invisible voices tell her, uh, everything you see here is yours. And so she lives in the mansion by day. And then at night, she's visited by her husband. And she can't see Cupid. So she goes along happily like this for a while. But at some point, she gets homesick. So Cupid lets her sisters visit her. And while her sisters are visiting her, they get her really curious about what her husband looks like. They're like, oh, he's probably a snake monster, right? You should ta- do this. Just take a candle and a knife and light the candle or light the lamp while he's asleep and look at his face. And then if he is a monster, grab the knife and just stab him to death. And she's like, all right, I'm going to do this. When she lifts up the candle, she sees that her husband is beautiful. He's a god. Mm-hmm. He's Cupid. And she's she's so overcome by his beauty that she leans over to kiss him and spills uh, either hot wax from the yeah. candle or hot oil from the lamp on his skin and burns him. Ow. And he's injured and he's really upset with her and he leaves her. And Psyche is miserable, and the beautiful mansion she's been living in disappears, and she's wandering, and mm-hmm. she realizes she has to um, she has to beg for forgiveness. So she, she goes to Venus and is like, I'm so sorry, what can I do to, to win back my husband? And so Venus gives her all these impossible tasks. So she completes all the tasks, and the last one is to go down to the underworld and to bring back a bit of um, Proserpine's beauty in a box. But she's, she's walking back with the box, and she knows she's not supposed to peek into it. Everyone has been warning her. But she says, you know, I've wasted away so much doing all these tasks. I want my husband to think I'm beautiful. I'll just take a little bit of the beauty for myself. So she opens the box and passes out. Turns out it's some sleep spell. And then Cupid sees her passed out, and he finally takes pity on her. And, and she's, he, he goes to her, and he wakes her up and puts the, the, the sleep spell back in the box and says... Basically, like that was stupid of you. Shouldn't have looked in the box. But anyway, so he takes the um, he takes the box to his mother, and he intercedes with another one of the gods to talk Venus down, and they decide to make Psyche into a god and bring <laughs> her up to to Olympus, and um, then she and Cupid live happily ever after and have a child named Pleasure. This is like a lesson for the kids, you know. If, if all else fails, play the pity card, <laughs> and you know <laughs> things will work out right in the end. 
So, and this one, it looks on the outside, it looks, and from what you've told us, you know, it looks way different from the Beaumont version and, you know, Beauty and the Beast type of tale, but it is very similar. They both have um, three sisters, the youngest of whom is the most beautiful. The heroine believes that she is going to perish at the hands of a beast, but instead of being killed when she arrives in the castle, she is um, sort of cosseted and given everything that she could want. In both versions, a monstrous male creature comes to the women on a nightly basis, and even though she doesn't know the true identity, she's impressed by his kindness and becomes less afraid. And in both stories, when uh, Beauty's sisters discover her good fortune, they grow jealous and try and plot against her. And due to their influence, Beauty breaks a promise and harms the monster, even though the broken promise sort of takes different forms in the two stories. And then both uh, stories end with a period of separation between Beauty and the Beast. But finally, the heroine seeks out her missing companion and marries him. So you could look at Cupid and Psyche as an earlier version of Beauty and the Beast. And it certainly inspired stories like um, East of the Sun and West of the Moon, which is a very similar tale from, um, I think it's a Scandinavian folktale, and um, involves a, a girl married to a big white bear. <laughs> But actually, I mean, even though Cupid and Psyche's a very early version, about yeah, 150 AD, it's still not the earliest version of the Beast Bridegroom story. There were a lot of stories about women who married snakes and ogres that circulated throughout Africa and Asia in the first centuries BCE. Um, and one of the earliest known versions was called The Girl Who Married a Snake. And that was recorded in Sanskrit, um, like roughly around the time of Christ. Okay, and we're not just talking about snakes here. We've got other beastly things and other disgusting animals. The one that, that I found the most interesting was the uh, pig prince. Oh, that story was a little bit sick. In the pig prince, there was um, the couple who wanted to have a kid and they couldn't have a kid. And... The dad was like, I'll do anything. I'll even have a pig for, for a child. And so, of course, you know, be careful what you wish for. He gets a pig for a child and doesn't know what to do with this pig child. And, you know, the pig child, like, runs around and, and like, comes home into the castle. And he's all muddy and gross. Um, and they're like, oh, what do we do with you? And then at one point he's like, ha, mother, I want to marry. Oink, oink, you know, like, give me, <laughs> give me a wife. Um, and so he sees this, uh, I guess it's like a peasant who has these three daughters, and they're beautiful daughters, but they're a poor family. And so the the pig's mother goes to visit these peasants, and it's like, hey, look, I'll cut you a deal. You know, like, you marry my, like, hideously ugly and disgusting pig son, and you can, like, live in the palace and inherit this castle once, you know, me and the king die. And so the first wife comes, and, and she's like, okay, you know, like, the eldest daughter comes. Well, I believe the mother pressures... The oh, daughter's yeah. married. Sort of the 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 eldest daughter and the I think the second daughter as well are just like, ugh, I don't want anything to do with it. But their mom is like, cash money, mm -hmm. just exactly, suck it yeah. up for the family. Yeah. And then the first one, isn't it? Um, she gets in there and she's like, this guy is disgusting. Like I cannot hang out with it. And the pig like comes home and he's all covered in dirt and crap. And you know he's like, hey baby, let's like have a roll in the hay. And she's like, oh, no, I think I'm just going to kill him in the middle of the night. And she, and doesn't the pig overhear her talking about her intent to kill him? And then she and then the pig, like, kills her first in the middle of the night. And 
the king and queen are like, oh, God, this is too bad. You know, like we can't prosecute because it's a pig and (laughs) pigs can't go to jail. So um, also he's the he's the prince. He can do pretty much what he wants. Pretty much whatever he wants. Right. To be the king. Right. And then that happens again with the second one. Um, with the second daughter, she comes in and she's like, I'm going to really like take care of this one. And then the pig kills the second daughter. And then the third one, the youngest, comes and she's like, the prince is a pig. And like, that's cool. And, you know, whatever. Like, <laughs> I'll use a fork when I eat and he'll like use his snout. And that's OK. And, you know, she sobbed just beyond I guess, the yeah. outside and, and wasn't looking at, you know, like. The fact that he was a pig. The fact that he was a pig. And, she like, saw the fact that he could talk and he had a human mind and heart. Their first, their wedding night, he's still a pig. Oh. And uh, the, the author of the Straparola, who wrote one of the famous versions of the story, uh, describes um, the queen sneaks into the bedchamber the next morning and she's really worried that she's going to find the bride dead again. And instead she finds her in this bed, which is smeared with excrement and dirt from the pig. And that was some shitty sex. <laughs> <laughs> but she has a contented smile on her face. And she's alive. And mm. so the queen's like, all right, this marriage is probably going to work out. And then um, I, I think it's, it's later that the, the pig transforms back into a human. Okay, cool. We've got a lot of these animal bridegrooms that we're talking about, and this seems to be more popular than the animal brides, right? Yeah, but there are animal brides. It's just the theme of the story is usually different. Like instead of it being about uh, a man who's trapped as an animal and sort of the love of a good woman can transform him, a lot of times the women are, are tricked into transforming and then they change back. Like in legends about um, about selkies or swan maidens, it's um, – so like in the swan maiden legend, uh, a man sees these uh, swans land on the ground and then they throw off their feathery cloaks and they turn into beautiful women. And he's enamored of one of them. And so he goes, uh, he goes home to his mother and he's like, oh, my gosh, I'm so in love. I'm going to die if I can't have this girl. And his mother says, oh, steal her feather cloak. And she'll be human and she won't be able to, to leave again. So he does that and he basically tricks the woman into marrying him. So they get married and they have children. And then um, he's he's sort of years later, he's kind of reminiscing and he's like, you know, remember that time I stole your feather cloak? <laughs> Wasn't that awesome? And she's like, what are you talking about? And then he brings out the feather cloak to show her. And she puts as soon as she sees it, she puts it back on and turns into back into a, a bird and then flies away. And in some versions of the story, she she's had children, and the children also turn back into animals and leave with her. And in some versions, it turns into a Cupid and Psyche sort of tale, except it's the husband seeking the wife instead of the other way around. But for some reason, the moral of the animal bride has become less popular than the, the, the sort of themes of the animal bridegroom. I suspect that it has to do with traditions of arranged marriage, And, I mean, in in a lot of ways, the stories can be read as sort of a reconciliation to the marriage bed or giving advice on how to survive a particularly difficult spouse. So it can be a sort of coded way for women to talk to each other about, you know, simply perhaps how disgusting their husbands might be or to share advice on how to cope. So we've been kind of ragging on guys here and all these beast stories, but you, they're not the only ones who are disgusting. We've got a lot of we've got a number <laughs> of stories about like ugly women, disgusting women and, you know, a gallant man who has to see beyond the ugliness of this female character um, to to fall in love. And then the, the spell is broken. One of the most famous ones uh, would be the Loathly Lady story from Chaucer. Well, in that version, there is 
a knight from King Arthur's court, and he rapes one of the ladies, and he is sentenced to be killed, but the queen intervenes and sends him on a quest instead to find out what it is that women most desire. So he travels all over the place trying to figure out the answer to this question, and everyone tells him different things, like, you know, a handsome husband or wealth. And he is despairing and thinks that he'll never find an answer, but eventually he runs into this hideous hag who is called the Loathly Lady, and she tells him that she can give him the answer if he will do whatever she asks of him. So she gives him the answer, and it turns out to be sovereignty or, you know, dominion over their own lives. And her reward, basically, is that he has to marry her. So he escapes execution, but he has to marry her. And then she sort of poses him um, a question, which is whether or not he would prefer for her to be beautiful during the day and ugly at night, or the reverse, which is a theme that comes up in um, other sort of monstrous women stories. Um, but instead of giving a proper answer, he says um, that she should make the choice, whatever pleases her most. And at that point, the spell is broken, and she turns into the most beautiful woman in the world. That's a nice guy. Yeah, you well, know, he learned his lesson. The, yeah, that was really nice. Yeah. I like that ending. The thing about the Beast Bridegroom tale, this sort of second type of tale we're talking about, is I think that the theme of nature versus civilization is particularly strong in this tale type. I mean... I think to a lesser extent, it's also in the Beauty and the Beast type tale. But in this one, I feel like with uh, a, a prince who is literally forced to live as an animal or a an animal that turns into a human, there's sort of the push-pull between civilization and sort of the the human world and the sort of wild animal world. There, there are definitely a couple of versions that seem to offer sort of a commentary on um, sort of like the, the beast representing something that we're missing with, you know, civilization. And he represents something wild um, and uncivilized that is actually kind of desirable. Um, for example, um, Francesca Leah Block wrote a really, really lovely collection of revised fairy tales, I think in 2000. And her Beauty and the Beast story um, basically involves, um, it, it very much follows sort of the, the Beaumont plot initially, but what happens is that when Beauty gets to the castle, she becomes really, really uncivilized and starts basically taking on all of the characteristics of the beast. And I mean, that involves, you know, just sort of being outside and running through the woods and just uh, generally enjoying the natural world for the first time in her life. But at the conclusion of the tale, the beast turns back into a human and Beauty is actually really, really disappointed and misses his wildness and misses sort of the greater connection to nature that they had both shared. I find that interesting because I think that we've had a recent tradition of a lot of monsters being um, turned into romantic objects. And maybe that has to do with what Sarah said about how, uh, how because we're no longer in direct contact with nature, like we don't have to fear actual monsters and so we feel like we're missing that. And so we're attracted to them instead. So you have um, 
monsters like vampires go from the Dracula version where these there are these sort of insidious invaders and we have to destroy them to the Twilight vampires where they're sparkly and all they need is love. I mean, if you talk to people, even about like the Disney beast, people like him better before he turns into a prince. Yeah, and I think a lot of it might have to do with just the gentle nature that this beast can have and then also maybe the unpredictability. And because um, we don't have that in everyday life, we're attracted to it. Exactly, hmm. yeah. So moving from beastly men to women, um, in, it's interesting to look at the role of gender in the story. And l- ignoring the stories about animal brides and looking just at sort of the animal bridegrooms and at the Beauty and the Beast tale, Beaumont's story, and um, later versions based on her story, it's sort of interesting to see that she, Sarah Cleto describes the Beaumont beauty as a proto-feminist. It is really, really significant that so many of the authors are women, particularly the fact that the normative version um, by Beaumont is a woman, Um, because actually none of the other canonical fairy tales that I can think of have a normative version written by a woman. So clearly there's something about this tale that really resonates with women, and I think part of it is the tale's um, extreme focus on romantic love and marriage and its sort of negotiation of the other. And that seems to be a theme that was particularly important, especially to women, you know, in in earlier centuries where they weren't really so frequently able to have an occupation of their own and they were very much tied to their husbands. We've got some women who are still telling the story and they've got these feminist modern retellings of Beauty and the Beast. There's one by Angela Carter, right? Right. She has one called The the Courtship of Mr. Lion and one that I love called The Tiger's Bride. And in The Tiger's Bride, it's um it's it's the tale is rewritten to be more from the point of view of beauty and she's very surly. She's angry at everything. Her father is a gambler and he gambles her at cards and loses her to the beast. She she doesn't except passively being given to the beast. She's just sort of angry at him and doesn't refuses to cooperate. And the, the beast communicates through his servant that he, he requests that he wants to see her naked, and she refuses. But then he takes off his clothes and is revealed as a tiger who's been dressed up in the clothes of a man. And she decides eventually to, to strip down, and then at the end... He, said, he gives her leave to go back to her father, and she decides to stay, and then the beast transforms her into a tigress, and she sort of lets go of all those restraints that society has put on her and is true to her inner nature, and then she and the beast, you know, go off and be tigers together. And it's got to be uncomfortable for him, too, like, to I dress imagine. up and all that. Jeez. <laughs> How does he even manage to, like, get his arms properly into the, you know? It's a story. (laughs) It's a fairy tale. (laughs) So we're out of time for our discussion on Beauty and the Beast. We'll uh, post some of the different versions of the tale on our websites if people want to learn more about those. And if you'd like to learn more about the podcast, you can visit our website at tabledfables.tumblr.com. And you can email us at tabledfables at gmail.com. And uh, please join us next time. We'll be discussing the story of the girl without hands, also known as the armless maiden. Whoa. It's disturbing. Yeah, it sounds a little bit disturbing, so. All oh, right. just wait. <laughs>